Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. What's up? This your boy Lil Duval. And check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Ridiculous History is a production of iHeartRadio. Welcome back to the show, Ridiculous Historians. Thank you, as always, so much for tuning in. That's the one and only super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Give it up for him. My name is Ben. Uh, Noel, I want to thank you in advance for for doing this episode because uh, birds... Well, not only birds, Ben, the most terrifying of of all of God's uh, hideously deformed winged creatures. The one what walks on the land and comes at you with its long snake-like gangly neck and beady little eyes. You know, it's got the the, the strength to like smash a car window with its face. I mean, these are the most terrifying creatures on earth. These and the emus. Um, But I think I I would put... Yeah, well, that's fair. There's also that one, what is it, the cassuary? It's Uh basically like the velociraptor of the bird family. They can like, uh, what is it, like disembowel a man with its one razor sharp claw. Yeah, I, uh, I, I would, I, I actually have a soft spot for ostriches and emus as well, but shoebills, cassowary, uh, those things freak me out. I, I'm mm-hmm. glad to, as a lover of all animals, I don't, I don't mess with them. Uh, just shoebills always look like they're up to something. Remind me what a shoe, what a shoebill is. That's the one with the really big, flat, freaky beak, beak right? Yeah, yeah. They always, they always look like they're going. Hmm. Oh God, you're Ben. The moment you said that, I Googled the picture and the very first image, it looks like he's going, it is I, the shoe bill come to wreck your day. I know. It's like they're always saying, are you sure about that? He looks like he'd be friends with the Grinch. 
Dude, yes, there's, what, there's what I'm looking at right now. He looks downright sinister. Like mm-hmm. he is, you know, he's got those kind of ninja turtle creases between his eyes, you know, uh-huh. like the, with like the, 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 the kind of like the, you know, the furrowed brow. And I'm not talking about the, you know, Saturday morning cartoon Ninja Turtles. I'm talking about like the the darker, creepier early comic version. Um, oh, yeah. And it's just a staring daggers right into my soul. Uh, so okay, I think I'm. I fear the shoebill stork more so than the ostrich. But the ostrich is damn terrifying. But also, turns out it produces some pretty fluffy, delightful, and dare I say, precious to uh, certain types uh, plumes. Segway. That's right. Uh, Today's episode is about one of the largest and most profitable industries in the world in the 20th century, uh, around the turn of the 20th century, really. It was something called millinery, uh, the art specifically of decorating women's hats with bird feathers. And you're talking about like all the high rollers, In Europe, in the U.S., and everywhere in between, if you were a fashionable lady, you had to have not one, but ideally a collection of hats that were just awash, festooned with bird plumage, sometimes with like whole stuffed birds, right? Like literally wearing like a tiny taxidermy chickadee on your head? Mm Mm-hmm. To let people know that you had it made. Uh, you say lavish. I think the word I would choose to use would be garish, but whatever. Uh, different times, different strokes, and all that. It's true. I mean, we 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 think of the cliche ladies' hats, you know, of bygone eras, and we do think very ostentatious, very large and in charge, and covered in these kind of plumes, very very ornate. Uh, we also know, of course, the era of the hat pin and the ladies that armed themselves with these very long, scary hat pins to fend off the. Uh, notorious masher of, I believe that was around, what, the 1920s? Yeah, uh, early 1900s, which is interesting because this would have been happening around the same time. So do check out our hat pin story uh, if you if you haven't heard that episode before. Big question, just like uh, people are concerned with supply chains nowadays. The big question was this, where do we get these fancy feathers Some of the most popular ones came from herons and egrets that live in the southeastern United States, Mm -hmm. but these had limited availability. You couldn't get them year-round. You could only get them during the breeding season, and for the rest of the year, when you couldn't get your heron feathers, you had another option, the ostrich. But eventually it became more than an option. It became literally yes. the most uh, sought after of all the bird plumes uh, in question here. By around 1910, the ostrich trade was the most lucrative industry um, in the country of South Africa, where they were farm raising these birds specifically for their their feathers. And, and obviously we know that they would also be surely used for their meat. I mean, ostrich jerky is a thing. I think there are some restaurants where you can get like ostrich steak. It's apparently a little bit like a dark meat that almost like uh, sort of splits the difference between like a steak vibe and like a, you know, dark meat chicken vibe. Yeah, yeah. I've actually, uh, I've had ostrich meat before, uh, jerky, as you mentioned. And then I want to say there was a place I went to called Fossil Farms, they sell ostrich steaks. Now, be warned, they're a little bit pricey. We're talking about $16 or so for an eight-ounce steak. But I don't regret it. I don't know if it would be an everyday thing for me, though. You know, it's kind of like kangaroo, I guess. 
But aside from our carnivorous tendencies, maybe we should learn a little bit more about the ostrich because I'll be honest, I was watching a lot of videos before I even knew we were going to do this episode. I was watching a lot of videos of this uh, lady who like rescues ostriches and she has this farm with these different ostriches and they're temperamental creatures. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You could, you could, you could also sub in the word terrifying creatures, but let's, let's dive in ever so slightly if we must to the history of ostriches and the role that they ultimately came to play in the fashion industry. Um, Atlas Obscura, uh, as always, has a fantastic article uh, on today's topic, The Strange Tale of the Great 1911 Trans-Saharan Ostrich Heist. Is that the name of a, a prog rock band, you might ask? No, it's not. It's the topic of today's episode, but we're getting there. Uh, and this one is by Vincent Gabrielle. And in this article, Vincent goes through some of the history that we're about to talk about. Arnie Moores, who is a uh, professor of biodiversity at Simon Fraser University, who is quoted in this piece, has this to say. Uh, the ostrich may be the most evolutionarily isolated species in the world. What do we mean by that, Ben? Evolutionarily isolated. They've got some things that one would think would cause them to not thrive. But yeah. yet, here they are. Yeah, yeah. It's it's The ostrich is one of those animals that when you see it for the first time, uh, especially in real life, your first thought is, really? Really, though? Like, how? How and why? Why, God? <laughs> yeah. Why? The, the spooky thing about these uh, these farm videos is that when the ostriches are in a good mood and they're affectionate with their trainer, their handler or whatever, they kind of like loop their neck around your shoulder. No, thank and, you. <laughs> or no, they go like they put their head and their neck into the uh, collar of your shirt and kind of mm. snuggle up. I know, I know. No. <laughs> I'm getting uncomfortable talking stay, about. Stay away. <laughs> but they're so, you're right. They are, when we say evolutionarily isolated, what we mean is that ostriches and their closest relatives, cassowaries, kiwis, emus, stuff like that, they actually diverged when dinosaurs were still walking the earth. And according to Morse, they're different because they have a long evolutionary branch with a flowering at the very end. Just two species, couple of subspecies, Central and Southern Africa. And since they were around when humans got on the scene, human beings have had a lot of time with these massive, weird-looking, but beautiful birds. And it, they've been traditionally hunted for meat. You can make leather with their skin. Mm -hmm. uh, they... They even feature in like Egyptian iconography. Not to mention that they uh, sport, maybe that's not quite the best choice of words, but I'll go with it. They sport the largest eggs of any living um, member of the avian family, um, which is kind of interesting. And so therefore they are also hunted for their eggs because mm -hmm. uh, you get you know, like one ostrich egg is like the equivalent of like a dozen chicken eggs, you know, in terms of the amount of juice that it produces. I think one ostrich egg alone has like 2,000 calories. So it's a, it's a family meal, I think. But if you have eaten an ostrich egg by yourself, kind of want to hear the story. Well, your picture goes on the wall, my friend. Let me tell yes. you. You get a t-shirt. You get a hat with 
plumes on it. Uh-huh. Uh, there we go. So we know uh, these eggs, I'm glad you brought this up because these eggs have been used for many purposes, many flexes throughout various civilizations. They were given, they were carved up and like given as offerings in ancient Grecian times. And I believe later they were used to decorate uh, minarets, as is mentioned in that Atlas Obscura article. So how did we get from there to this hat craze? Like we said, there was a sort of an arms race for elaborate hats in the world of fashion in like the late 19th and early 20th century or so. And these hats got bigger and bigger and bigger and ostrich feathers became a natural fit because ostrich feathers are also really big, right? So you don't want to have a ginormous hat and then have some dinky like little sparrow feather corsage on there. People are going to tell you that you have a plain hat, which is a big insult back then. God, plain hat? Uh, plain get hat out of town. No, you are not a member of this country club, my friend. Absolutely not. So here's another thing evolutionarily that is very interesting. Uh, because these massive birds you know, take up a lot of space on the earth that would normally be freed up if they were like, you know, flighted birds. Uh, These feathers that normally are adapted to um, uh, creating the means for flying now have become more of a tool for elaborate mating ritual displays, you know, similar to the peacock. People talk about peacocking around. No one really says ostriching around, but it's a similar deal. They display these feathers, you know, and flighted birds do as well, if I'm not mistaken. But this, it becomes much more important um, because they're, you know, approaching a potential mate and they have to kind of do this little dance or whatever. So the feathers that would typically be used for flight are much more tightly constructed. They're kind of knitted together in this asymmetrical kind of pattern. Ostrich feathers, on the other hand, are very long and they're loose and light and they have these fluffy little plumes, you know? When you think of the word plume, I think a lot of us think of like a a writing quill, you know, or like one of those cute pens that like uh, teenage girls like with the fuzzy ends on them or whatever. You know, two very different sized writing tools from history, but both equally uh, plumey. Also, the word plume refers to like a puff of smoke, something very wispy and like, you know, stretched out that kind of has this sort of like ethereal quality to it, right? Yeah, yeah, that's a great description. Also, these feathers don't have the tiny hooked barbs that are on other, other feathers from other animals. So it's the perfect fit for decorating the hats of these wealthy members of society. And these hats were a huge, huge deal from like the 1800s all the way to the advent of World War I, or I should say the outbreak of World War I in 1914. Uh, one, one person is quoted in a great Daily Cost article by Lenny Flank just says the following. It says, a well-dressed woman nowadays is as fluffy as a downy bird fresh from the nest. If you would be fashionable, you would be beplumed. Now, I want to say beplumed more often. 
Beplumed. I like that, Ben. That suits you. Try that one on. See how see how it goes. <laughs> so this was the height of fashion. And the beauty of it was, you know how like most fashion trends are cyclical or seasonal at the very least, right? Not so with the ostrich feathers. Or they were absolutely at the height of popularity and fashion all year round. Yeah, exactly. And just as fashion also kind of trickles down over time and becomes less exclusive. The same thing happened with ostrich feathers. Eventually, there were at least 14 different varieties, uh, numerous kind of grades of feather, which meant that you didn't have to be a one percenter to get these. And the the transatlantic ostrich feather, according to cjnews.com, was mainly in the hands of a lot of Yiddish-speaking immigrants from the Russian Empire. This was an international thing. This was an international trade. People were working in South Africa, the Middle East, Europe, the United States. But as we already said, the heart of the ostrich trade was there in South Africa, and that's where the feather trade originated. And generally, the hunters, the people who actually got these ostriches, were indigenous inhabitants or folks who had settled there from Europe. Even if you really like ostriches, you got to be careful with them. They do have a heck of a kick. They can injure you. They can kill you. There is one thing I wanted to ask you guys about, because in the research, we found some claims that ostriches had been domesticated, but I don't I don't know if I if I quite agree with that because they seem like they could be tamed, but they still seem very much like wild animals, right? I don't know, man. Uh, I, I show me a tame ostrich. I just don't think they have it in them. You know, they, they they're like dinosaurs. Uh, I mean, yeah. I think this is a challenge. I mean, should we try to domesticate an ostrich? The Fennec Fox experiment would argue <laughs> that it's possible. Y'all can have that one. I'll be the third party observer from afar. You can send me like just YouTube updates or whatever, and I'll like give you my two cents uh, since I am the uh, the height of skeptical about this. But uh, go with God, gentlemen. Go with God. <laughs> they're they're only partially domesticated, apparently. Uh, and according to thoughtco.com, they're only domesticated for a short period of their lives. So maybe we can be the ones to change that tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. 
I'm J.B. Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. But to get a better picture of this, let's just say there was so much money involved that people were willing to risk injury or possibly death because the trade was so popular that feather handlers could maybe pluck an ostrich, an adult ostrich, every eight months or so. And they would also grow alfalfa as like the livestock feed. And if a farmer did this, alfalfa and ostriching, ostriching? I like it. Uh, if they did this, they would get, they would earn like five to six times more in a year than they would have if they were just regular farmers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's worth the premium for dealing with devil spawn year round like that. Uh, I, I, I wish them the best, uh, but you know, okay, listen, I kid, uh, obviously not a fan of these creatures, but these were not particularly pleasant circumstances for these ostriches. Were they, were they like plucking them? And then is that, is that a one-time thing? You pluck them and then no, it's not right. You pluck them. You were to say yearly or how often every eight months, every eight months. So close to a year. And is that, I can't imagine that's a pleasant experience for the bird. It's not like getting shaved. If you're a sheep, I mean, they're like ripping these out to keep them intact. Right. Yeah, it's uh, clearly they're plucking them uh, based on their the farmers or handlers are prioritizing the the highest quality feathers, right? Mm-hmm. Ideally, because that's going to have the biggest profit margin. Uh, but I don't think it is particularly pleasant for the birds, especially if you just do a quick internet search in your browser choice for plucked ostrich. Uh, it doesn't look like they had a good time becoming that way. You can see the little bristles and spines and the, the skin, which, trigger warning, might set some people off. Oh, God. Yeah, I so. wish I had waited for that trigger warning. <laughs> Next time, oh, we'll put it in the front. Yeah. Oh, it, they, they look like plucked chickens, literally. And they're yeah. mainly, oh. yeah, this is not okay. Why oh. did I look that up after you looked it up, Noel? And they 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 look even more like dinosaurs now, don't they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And something about the color of the skin and the texture just really—it's very unsettling. It's very yeah. unsettling. And yet we we all probably late. had turkey for for Thanksgiving dinner. So <laughs> right. um, maybe we should rethink our own values here. But. Um, So as we said, I mean, this is a big business for South Africa. At the time, they provided around 85% of the entire planet's ostrich feathers. Uh, The rest came from, as you mentioned earlier, Ben, from North Africa. Uh, And there were these established trans-Saharan trade routes um, that were typically navigated uh, on the backs of camels. Mm. Um, So... This was just fine for South Africa. Ostrich feathers were its third most profitable export, and the government had already taken over land from some of the indigenous people from the surrounding areas, uh, not to mention Dutch uh, Boer settlers and ousted them from their land, and they used that land to create these massive ostrich farms that were overseen by the government. Yeah, yeah. uh, This gives rise to things like 
Uchorn, which is a feather town. So feather towns were a thing, uh, but there was one big problem. And not everybody outside of South Africa was aware of this, or not everybody outside the African continent. South Africa was selling feathers like gangbusters, but they didn't actually have the best feathers. Everybody in South Africa in the trade knew there was something else. There was a better kind of ostrich, the Barbary ostrich. See, and that's the thing, Ben. I mean, if you don't know what you're missing, mm. I'm sure these South African feathers were great, you know? And then they were, you know, plenty fluffy and the the inherent nature of the ostrich feather in and of itself is going to feel really great if you get one. But when you compare it to the extra uh, snuggly, extra plumy Barbary ostrich feather, uh, these South African ostrich feathers looked like trash in comparison. And we were starting to see shipments of these feathers passing through. So people were starting to get hip to the fact that they were missing something, that there were better feathers out there. Yes, better feathers indeed. That's because the Barbary ostrich is the largest of all the subspecies making it the largest living bird, meaning that those feathers are going to be larger as well. And they were also, they also had this quality called being double flossed. They had a kind of filmy down, if you can picture it, that was much more dense uh, in comparison to regular old South African ostrich feathers. And so this made a, a tremendous and luxurious or garish display that people were super into. By 1882, by the way, a single pound of ostrich feathers, just the regular ones, were going for about $400, which is a little more than $10,000 today or so. Jeez Louise. Uh, and just for a reference today, you can get two ostrich fillets for $17.98 from wildfork.com. You go I mean, to Wild you know. Fork, I go to Fossil Farbs. We got oh, to switch. Let's try them out. <laughs> I think we should. I think we should, Ben. And it's crazy, too. When you look at these ostrich fillets, they really do look straight up like steak. And I think that largely has to do with the fact that they're such active and lean birds, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's, uh, mm -hmm. it really does, like, have the appearance of a steak. So the South Africans looked at this as an opportunity. They were not uh, daunted. I mean, they already owned, you know, 85% of the global ostrich trade, ostrich feather trade. So they're like, well, why not just let's diversify? Let's figure out where these massive, you know, high quality feather yielding beasts come from and get our hands on a breeding pair of them. Yeah. Yeah. It's a brilliant plan, right? We will get the top notch quality feathers and then we won't have to worry about this American competition out there in Arizona. One problem, though. Nobody really knew where the Barbary ostrich came from. And so they saw an opportunity, an ostrich-tunity, if you will. I make no apologies, Max. Uh, they, the thing is, by the time they got all these, act, the, like the top-notch feathers, they had been passed through so many middlemen that nobody, nobody knew the origin point. The best guess the experts could make in South Africa was that these birds must be located somewhere in the lower edge of the Great Saharan Desert, with uh, in within a place called the Sahel region, uh, and that's within caravan range, like you said, Noel, by Camelback. Uh, it's caravan range of the trading center at Tripoli. And so, 1911, 
the South African government officially organizes a trans-Saharan ostrich expedition. The entire reason this thing is around is to figure is to hunt down Barbary ostriches and bring back as many pos- as possible alive to South Africa. And, and let's just be clear here, AKA steal them. Oh yeah. It's a heist. Yeah. Yeah. It's absolutely <laughs> ice. A government sanctioned ostrich heist. That's Finally. what we're dealing with. That's what we're dealing with. Yeah, exactly. After all these years, after all those Ocean's Eleven movies, but the heist is on. A guy named Russell William Thornton, who was a hero from a conflict called the Boer War, was assigned to lead the expedition. And this guy already had experience in the ostrich farming industry. So Russell Thornton's uh, goal, um, his charge that was uh, bestowed upon him by the government was to make his way into French Sudan, find the ostriches, and get a flock back to South Africa, should he choose to accept it, which, which he definitely did choose to accept it. This would have been before such a time as the Americans or French officials got wise to their movements. Yeah, exactly. Uh, they made some pretty, like, uh, hurried preparations. And Thornton said, all right, I'm going to round up a couple of my boys who are ostrich experts. And then he brought what to me sounds like a small army, uh, around uh, 100 porters, trappers, cooks, translators. They get together, they get on a boat, they sail from Cape Town in August of 1911. And the reason they were so rushed was because they were worried that somebody else might beat them in the heist. Thornton's own brother, Ernest, this guy had been an expert ostrich rancher, but he went to the dark side. He quit his job with the government and left for the United States. And then people were worried he had become a turncoat and sold his, uh, like become a consultant to help guide some Americans into the African continent and find the Barbary ostriches first. Why is this not a film? I feel like I say that once a month, but this is great. So our guy here, our our fearless leader, Russell William Thornton, um, before going back to South Africa, um, he on the side explained to his brother who was along with him that he was actually a double agent. Dum dum. I mean, seriously, this keeps getting weirder. He was a double agent and he was working as a as an independent contractor spying on the American ostrich industry. Later, he sort of walked this back a little bit and claimed that his whole intentions were to force the South African government to um, act on the information, the intel that they got uh, as to the whereabouts of the Barbary ostrich. Uh, South African officials were not happy, understandably, with the way he uh, behaved, you know, when he was supposed to be their guy on the ground, you know, in the, yeah. in the trenches, in the dunes. <laughs> This is where we learn the phrase ostrich espionage or yeah, ostrich espionage. Ostrich espionage. Yeah. I'll take you know. it. I'll take it all. Give it to me. <laughs> so we, we learned this phrase uh, thanks to the work of a biologist with a cool name, Thor Hansen. Thor Hansen wrote a book called Feathers, The Evolution of a Natural Miracle, which talks through this story. And Thor says, even now, in the modern day, it's still unclear who was spied on whom and how true or untrue Ernest Thornton's story about being a double agent was. 
But still, Russell only found out about this double agent thing after they were already on the boat. So they were already on the way. Uh, and I, I think it took them several months, right? Eventually, they got to British Nigeria. So at this point, Thornton's crew, which, uh, you know, would hopefully have contained at least one bagman, um, were camped near a town called Kano, like the character in Mortal Kombat with the laser eye. It rips your heart out and holds it up and it's still beating because that's totally how hearts work. Uh, and this is in British Nigeria. Where was Kano meant to be from? He was uh, South African, I believe. You know, that's a good question. Let's see. Kano, Mortal Kombat, nationality. We're just going to do this live, folks, because I'm, I'm not sure. Uh, he is an Australian. Uh, he is from the Earth realm. Earth realm. Australian. Got it. And for some reason, I thought he was uh, in the movie. They made him South African. Uh, for some reason, but um, you know those those don't don't tell don't say this to an Australian or a South African, but those accents do tend to uh, uh, get muddled up for me sometimes. Shots fired. Nope, nope. Shots retracted. Shots retracted. No shots intended. But yeah, so they're so they're so they're camped out, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they they know that this trading center. Kano, like you pointed out, uh, this trading center sells a bunch of stuff. One of the things it sells, Barbary ostrich feathers. So they know they're 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 like trying to trace back the trade, right? Uh, and reverse engineer the process till they can find the actual birds. So Russell sends out scouting parties, every possible direction you can imagine, and also he starts. Tell me what you think about this. It sounds like he was roughing up these desert caravans. Like he was, quote unquote, inspecting the cargo. It feels a lot like pretending your customs or something. Well, it's sort of a form of extortion or, uh, you know, kind of strong, strong armory. Right. But in doing this, he got some very valuable intelligence. He learned that they were getting these plumes from an area around a place called Zinder, uh, which was, by all accounts that he had access to, the only place on Earth where wild Barbary ostriches could be found. Yeah, and that's a problem. That's another plot twist, because this is this would be a great film. Zinder is not just a week's worth of travel away. It's also inside a French colony, Sudan, which is now part of Niger. Uh, South Africa was considered self-governing, but it was technically part of the British Empire, and the French and the British Empires didn't really get along. So Thornton felt like he had to ask his bosses for the green light. He wires, uh, sends a wire to South Africa and says, hey, good news, bad news, good news, pretty sure I think, uh, I think we found where the ostriches are. Bad news, it's deep in French territory. So he is waiting to hear back from his bosses and from the government to get the okay to cross in there, you know, knowing that it could be an international incident. So in the meantime, while he was waiting for a response from his government, uh, he spent time buying up as many ostriches and um, these Barbary fancy plumes that he could. Uh, in six weeks, he got the thumbs up from the South African government to go ahead with the plan. They uh, said that he was authorized to spend 7,000 pounds sterling for 150 ostriches, but it was almost like a black ops mission, yeah, right? Because they basically said, you you know, should you be captured, we will disavow any knowledge of this mission or association with you. How crazy is it that that, that is absolutely true? Serious business, man. 
Mm-hmm. And so with this suddenly Black Ops mission on his mind, Russell takes his gang uh, 150 miles north through the desert to a place called Fort Zinder, and he first tries diplomacy. For six weeks, he's trying to get the French colonial authorities to let him have some ostriches. And this is like Dr. Seussian level ridiculous here. The French officials didn't have a clue as to why the South Africans would want these ostriches in particular. But they said, you know what? You're technically part of the English empire. And if you want them, we're not doing it. Because if you want them, now now we want to keep them. And so they said, okay, listen here, Russell Thornton, you can't hunt these. You can't capture them. And nobody sell them any ostriches. And they're like, well, why, boss? And he's like, because they're basically British to us. Oh, man, poor guy. So (laughs) he kind of went back uh, to British Nigeria, plumeless hat in hand. And with no creepy, gangly neck birds in town. He was plain-hatted. Mm-hmm. The tragedy. That's the worst way to be. <laughs> yeah, but uh, Thornton was a man of great resolve, and he knew that he had what it took to get this done, and he was not going to be bested by a bunch of Frenchies. Yeah, he went to his network, the local desert leaders, and he turned to them for help. This is where the story gets a little muddy, right? I don't know how we want to film this when we finally start our film studio, but we do know Thornton somehow, eventually, does return to South Africa. He has a flock of ostriches, but there's like missing film from the narrative here because right now people don't know how he got these ostriches tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. The big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Today I'm going to give you some straightforward advice on how to deal with naughty kids. How about instead of timeouts, time ins? Time for you to start paying some bills. I'm JB Smoove, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at slash hypergig for details. What gives? Well, we have some private uh, letters that Thornton uh, sent back and forth between himself and a, um, a confidant by the name of Mr. Smith. 
and there are hints at possible extracurricular smuggling expeditions into French territory. And these were not all entirely without incident. There were even some conflicts with uh, some nomadic tribes folk and uh, some French soldiers reported in these exchanges. Yeah, at least that's what that's what people are finding from this, as you said, these private letters. But our buddy Thor notes that uh, the Russell's descendants deny anything like this happened. So right now, officially, we can't say it's confirmed that he <laughs> that he rolled in and turned his heist mission into like this action packed montage of violence, although that's just to be fair, what I'm picturing. <laughs> but either way, he does get a flock of ho- ostriches. Hostages, you could say. He took them hostage and marches them from northern Nigeria to uh, a train to take them to Lagos, right? Oh, and he gets malaria. Ah, fun. You see it drink a little tonic water, I'll knock it right out. So the ostriches are loaded into these specially modified kind of cattle cars, you know, um, train cars. Uh, and then they were transferred to a uh, freighter heading to Cape Town, South Africa. 140 of the total number survived the voyage, which is not, it's not awful, right? It's not, not, right. not a terribly bad survival rate for such a, you know, what would be a pretty strenuous voyage. Thornton's team, when they got back, they were treated like kings. They were given a ticker tape parade or whatever the South African equivalent of the day was. Thornton's brother, on the other hand, after being, you know, outed as a double agent, um, decided to just, to, he, he threw in his, uh, his plain hat. His plain hat. I feel like we've invented a new thing, calling mm-hmm. people plain hatted, which is a shame because you guys know my lucky hat is very plain. And for some reason, the idea of having feathers on that bad boy just, just freaks put me a, out. Put a single matchstick in it or maybe a playing card. There we go. Be, yeah. yeah. Minimalism. Thanks, man. That's a great idea, actually. I might do that. Uh, so my terrible awkwardness and haberdashery aside, you're absolutely right. Russell Thornton's gamble has paid off. He has saved the future of South Africa's ostrich monopoly for about two years. Because then the final plot twist occurred. The feather market crashed. It plummeted. Ostrich feathers were no longer compared to diamonds. People had once upon a time said that a good ostrich feather was an investment for life. Kind of like the way people talk about really fancy watches. But if you look around nowadays, right, uh, ostrich feathers are much less of a big deal. Right? Or do do we just not hang out in fancy enough circles? What do you guys think? I'm not sure, man. I know, you know, it's funny. I was actually Googling ostrich uh, steak to see like what types of restaurants sell ostrich steak. And it is upscale. Like it's definitely considered like a delicacy still. Uh Like you can find it at some fancy steakhouses here around town, like Rathbun's, for example. But when I Googled that, I also noticed that the key word came up for decor as well in some fancy restaurants. So if something has like, is adorned with like ostrich feathers or, you know, used in some way to like, you know, kind of uh, add a little pizzazz to certain interior decorating, that would also be considered very, very fancy, schmancy. Ah, okay, that makes sense, yeah. And despite the fact that they're still very fancy today, 
we're pretty sure we know what happened that spelled the end of the global ostrich trade. One of the big factors was the Audubon Society and then something called the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds. They were against the mass killing of birds for hat purposes. And they have been against this for years and years and years. And because of the efforts of the Audubon Society in particular in the U.S., Uncle Sam eventually passed something called the Lacey Act, which was going to prevent the interstate trade in wild birds. Ostriches and domestic birds were technically excluded from the legislation at this point, but the writing was on the wall. The, the feathers were on the bird. This fashion trend was on its way out. Right. I mean, you know, even nowadays, like with uh, artists and makers and stuff like that, 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 you know, create beautiful pieces of whether clothing or home decor or whatever, it's not particularly popular to use real bird feathers unless they are humanely sourced. Um, a good friend of mine um, who lives in Australia uh, makes jewelry. And she uses humanely sourced feathers, meaning she finds them. Hmm. She doesn't pluck them. These creatures are not raised to, you know, like pluck them of their feathers. She literally traipses through the forest uh, with like a little headlamp on and looks for, you know, looks for shed uh, bird feathers. And then you can use those. Um, otherwise, it's just kind of a bad look these days, you know. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's another thing that happened here. The automobile came onto play, right? The automobile has hit the stage. And what does that mean? That means big fancy hats that were perfectly fine when you're walking around are no longer as practical. Like how do you, if you're in an open carriage car, how do you keep that thing on your head? And then also when World War I comes around, people are a little more hesitant to appear very showy or very well off because everybody is basically having a terrible time, right? And then women are going into the workforce as uh, soldiers are sent away to foreign theaters of war. Apparently, according to that great Atlas Obscura article, Noel, uh, you referenced early in the show, apparently the final, final thing, the ostrich feather that broke the camel's back was the emergence of the bobcut. A bobcut I think most people know is just a really, really short hairstyle. And the theory is that this hairstyle was just not capable of supporting really cartoonishly big ass hats. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. It's true. Um, and as we know, aside from like little old ladies on Sunday, big hats are not so much a thing anymore. Well, remember that big hat that Pharrell wore for a while? Kind of like the Arby's hat. I still don't <laughs> understand that one, man. I like, I've thought about that in the years since what, what's going on. I mean, wear what makes you happy first. He's Pharrell. Yes. Yeah. He was trying yeah. something out. He was, okay. he was trying to, you know, make a change in the zeitgeist single-handedly, which uh, if anyone can do it, it's him. Don't know that it took off, but um, you do occasionally see big, weird hats. It's um, as dumb as it comes, though. It is so just like... Like, is it a park ranger hat? It's not quite... It's like a child's drawing of a park ranger hat. My question is, if you push down the top, does it go down? Or is there something in there? Is there, like, a like, support system built in there? Oh, yeah. yeah. Or, a, or, a, or a rabbit, perhaps. Or some sort mm -hmm. of small, uh, hairless cat. A small ostrich. Or a smaller hat. Or a smaller yeah, it's, it's like, it's like uh, 
Oh, it's the Russian stacking dolls. Russian hats. nesting hats. Yeah. 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 There we yeah. go. Okay. Well, we've solved it because I like all of those answers. Uh, of course, this is not all whimsy. This was a huge trade. So thousands of people did lose their job when this industry collapsed. And that kind of spelled the end of it. But we do we do have an epilogue, Nolan. I think this has probably been on your mind as well. One of my big questions, Max, is probably your big question too. No, what about the ostriches? These ostriches that got kidnapped, uh, almost 150 of them, got locked up in South Africa. Are they out of jobs too, or what? Well, we don't really know exactly what happened to them. What we do know is that they were never bred into South Africa's, you know, stock of ostriches. That just didn't happen. The last bird from that flock was a male and was killed in a lightning strike. So all of this Ocean's Eleven ostrich edition heisty business was absolute waste of time and energy for all concerned. It's a shame, you know, and the ostriches, the Barbary ostriches from that area in Zinder and Kano on the Niger, Nigerian border, unfortunately, also were not long for the world because these French colonial administrators were, they weren't going to permit official exports, but it appears they didn't pay enough attention to the unofficial stuff, the smuggling, the overhunting, the encroachment of humans into the natural habitat. As our pal Thor Hansen says, and I love this, he says, they, uh, they didn't send the brightest bulbs to Zender. No, they did not. And one of the sad things about all this is I had sort of speculated early on that they would have, you know, used every part of the ostrich or when they were, you know, retired from being plucked, they would have uh, used their meat. But I guess you want the meat of young ostriches. I'm not quite sure. But the point is uh, there was this huge uptick in the, you know, um, use of feathers as like a trading commodity. Um, but that did not mean that people were eating more ostrich. Huh. Uh, instead, you had a lot of these animals that were being uh, found in the wild, killed, plucked, and then just left to rot or be eaten by scavengers. Oh, like so, the buffalo, huh? Not, yeah, exactly. I mean, we were supposed to use every part of the buffalo. Mm-hmm. We're supposed to use every part of the ostrich, but no, pretty short-sighted um, in, in, these, uh, in these situations. Yeah, and so this is... This leads us also to a harsh uh, ecological lesson. Today, the Barbary ostrich is has been eliminated from most of the southern Sahara Desert. It's critically endangered. It exists in some parts of Chad, Cameroon, and Senegal. But there's a big question. Are these the same ostriches as the ones Thornton was rounding up? Or were they something else? that is now extinct. And it's a, it's, it's a tough question to ask, but it's also, I think, an appropriate sort of epilogue to the great trans-Saharan ostrich heist. Yeah, and um, we can end this one with a, a little bit of ostrich trivia. I think everyone's probably aware of the almost cartoony, cliche notion that ostriches stick their head in the sand when they're scared. It's sort of, I don't know, I think it was always used to imply that ostriches were either stupid or um, 
cowards in some way. We know they're definitely not cowards. They will come at you and snake at you with that weird tiny head and gangly neck. But it turns out this is all just a matter of uh, the way an ostrich looks and the proportion of its head to its body. If you're looking at an ostrich from a distance and they're like nibbling at a little bit of food on the ground, uh, it could in fact look like their tiny little heads have disappeared into the sand. Mm, I see. And yeah, and their heads are really, really small. Uh, we we also have some uh, more ostrich trivia. They're the fastest two-legged species on Earth. Their top speed is 43 miles an hour, and they can run 30 miles an hour for 10 miles at a time, making them also one of the best long-distance runners in the animal kingdom. Uh, you can still, in some touristy spots, you can ride ostriches, I don't think people should, but I'll admit as a kid, it was one of my first questions, right? Did you, didn't you think that as a kid? Uh, uh, that's a big note from me, my friend. <laughs> um, right. But you, yeah. you, you have that. Uh, it is neat though, because we talked about how, you know, their wings were sort of useless, I guess, or, the, or at least that would be the perception, I think. But that's not in fact the case. They don't fly in the air, but they sure do fly on the land. Like you said, they're the fastest long distance runners in the animal kingdom. And they actually use their wings as kind of like rudders, uh, like a, a boat would use rudders or like a plane would use like, you know, those flaps. Um, and it allows them to maneuver their bodies and kind of cut the air like in Mario Kart when you like draft behind somebody or when you do like a like a drift you know mm-hmm. um, they're able to make these like very fast breaks and zigzagging patterns while they run largely because they're using those wings to stay balanced and in control of their bodies which leads us all to say you shouldn't try to fight an ostrich and you definitely shouldn't try to outrun them they will they will wax you. I do want to shout out, you know how WikiHow has all these weird articles? I found a WikiHow article called Three Ways to Survive an Ostrich Encounter or Attack. And uh, just the just the images are hilarious. What do you call a group of ostriches? A herd? Um, yeah, I guess a herd. Let me see. Maybe a maybe flock, a flock. A flock. Yeah. Oh, like geese. Okay. Uh-huh. Exactly. Well, well, my question for you was if you ever see, if you ever came upon a flock of ostriches and all of them turn those weird little heads to you at the same time, you will know truly, my friends, the feeling of abject horror. Almost (laughs) as bad as seeing an ostrich mate. Oh, boy. Yeah, I don't know if we're going to sleep tonight, guys. Uh, But, ridiculous historians, we hope you enjoyed this episode. You know we all love a good heist story, and we're so glad you tuned in with us today. Thanks, as always, to our super producer, Mr. Max Williams. Thanks to Casey Pegram. Thanks to Gabe Luzier. Thanks to Alex Williams, who composed our theme. Uh, Eve's Jeff Coates, Christopher Asiotis, always here in spirit. Jonathan Strickland, the Quister. Um, you know what he would have maybe pointed out uh, mm. if we were if we were here right now, because he likes to point out pedantic little trivia facts. Did you know that a group of zebras is referred to collectively as a dazzle? And that is where the name for that weird type of military uh, paint job that were uh, at one point done on naval ships were referred to as dazzle camouflage. Because in a big group, the zebra stripes can actually create an optical illusion where almost they appear to just to, to kind of vanish. Nice. The more you know. Well, thank you. Thanks for that, man. And, and thanks, of course, Noel. I feel like I need to send you a nice card or something because I, I didn't realize initially how, how bird-centric this episode would be. 
But hopefully the heist made up for it. Oh, yeah. It was it was fine. It was fine. Uh, those ostriches got what was coming to them. I'm kidding. I love all of God's creatures. They just creep me out. But they definitely deserve to live and not be plucked by, you know, weird South African poachers. Ooh, crazy idea for ending the episode. Uh, Max, can we just, for the audio, can we just play the sound uh, an ostrich makes? Gross. We'll see you next time, folks. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode of Ridiculous History is brought to you by Avalon Waterways. Ben, are you in major need of a vacation right now? Noel, you're a mind reader. I am, and uh, aren't we all? We are. While cruising remains popular, there's something big happening in the industry, and that is, my friend, smaller ships. True story. The intimate ships of Avalon Waterways can go where the big ships can only dream, through winding passageways, rolling vineyards, and castled hills, into the heart of timeless cities and storybook villages. That sounds like a delight. See how Avalon's smaller ships promise greater discoveries, fewer people, and more of everything. Limited time. Special offers await at AvalonWaterways.com. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch strata coaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com.